You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. Hey, well, for those who don't know me, my name is Matt Campbell. And for those who have been here for a while, my name is Matt Campbell. It's, <laughs> it's been a while since I've been up here. Um, but I'm really, I'm really thankful. So the elder team kind of approached and was just like, hey, what if you took the month of July and didn't preach and just kind of worked on other stuff? And it was really good, really healthy, really good to just kind of take the space and time. You know, when you're deep in a series, you don't have time for a lot of other stuff, you know? So there's just there's other stuff than just preaching, turns out. Um, and so, uh, so I'm really thankful for that. So thank you. And we got to take some good uh, family trips and stuff like that. So, um, but it's great to be back up here. It felt great just to kind of get back into to prep and all that kind of stuff. And um, as we kind of looked at, you know, finishing out the summer, uh, we kind of looked at the four weeks we had in August saying, hey, what could we do um, that would just kind of be like a really good anchoring for us before we get into the craziness of the new school year and all that stuff? Um, So that's why we picked a psalm uh, for each week by different elder um, that was uh, from one of the different books of the psalms. We'll get into that a little bit. Um, So I had book three of the psalms. Gabe uh, led us in book two of the psalms last week, and we kind of saw Psalm 23, our little mini-series on that a few months ago as book one, um, so that over the course of the summer we'll cover all five books. Um, But I picked Psalm 77 for a couple different reasons. First, as I was going from my little section to choose um, uh, of book three, um, to be honest, I was looking for the shortest. Um, I really like Psalm 78. You should go read Psalm 78, but it's like 70 verses. Um, and I love to go verse by verse, so that would take a while. Um, so you're welcome. Um, secondly, the title. If you read Psalm 77, the title is, In the Day of Trouble... I seek the Lord. Now, I'm well aware in my own life, it's much easier to cry out to God in times of trouble, right, than when things are just going great. When things are going great, that's just how it should be going, right? It's kind of hard to, like, cry out to the Lord, but when it's hard, why, God, why me, you know? Um, and it, which kind of leads me to reason three why I picked this psalm, other than I hope and assume the Lord led me to it. Um, When I'm in that dark place in times of trouble, kind of blinded by my own darkness and all that's around me, I might cry out to God. But what struck me in this title is I don't know if I actually seek the Lord. If I'm honest, what I seek most of the time is a way out of the darkness, out of the pain. My conviction, when I saw this title, when I read through this psalm, my conviction is that I don't know if I always actually want the almighty Lord, the Christ, the Christ, the rock of my salvation, right? Sometimes that's too much. It's too intense. Sometimes I just want the pain to go away. I just want the hurt to stop hurting. I want results and relief more than I want relationship. Can anyone relate in here? No, just me? Okay. I think today this psalm will be good solve to that uncovered wound um, as we finish out the summer here. So there's a bit of debate on the compilation of these psalms in these books, right? And this kind of all relates to uh, why we're doing this psalm. So one thing that's clear in the five books of the psalms 
is that the, one of the chief reasons is to remind the people of God, uh, uh, mind the people of God's faithfulness in their story and the faithfulness of Israel's story, especially in the five books of Moses. So Genesis, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So within the Psalms, we have Genesis-like creation Psalms, Exodus-like salvation Psalms, Leviticus-like worship Psalms, Numbers-like wandering Psalms, and Deuteronomy-like Psalms that are reminding the people of the way of God and to follow it with every fiber of their being. So these books also weave into much of David's story. I think it's like 70 plus of the Psalms were written by David or about his story. And it's also about the parallels of his journey to that of the Israelite people and the hope for the king and the kingdom that will not be destroyed. And book three is interesting because we here we get this compilation of Psalms that were most likely written when Israel was in captivity, in exile. These are songs of worship of those trapped in a land not their own. This is a point of Israel's history that they're clinging on for any signs of hope and the fulfillment of the promises God has made to them, but also lamenting in their own sin and downfall as a nation. And this is included in worship songs. It's not just all happy-go-lucky, right? And here we are in book three, and so we can ask this question before we get into it. What was this psalm for? What, what was the point of it? If you look at the subtitle in your Bible, it says, To the choir master, according to Jedithan, a psalm of Asaph. Okay? So it might be weird to think, but there was very much a structured worship team. And for much of Israel's history, even in the desert, even in the tabernacle, that's much of what Leviticus is about, is actually bringing orderly worship to to what they do. They had choirs, they had instruments and practices that would lead the people to worship their God. One of these worship leaders was Asaph. Asaph was a trusted and prophetic worship leader for David and his son Solomon. You could find more mentions of him in First and Second Chronicles. He wrote or was part of many of the Psalms and then implemented them into regular worship. Jedithan and his sons were appointed to lead then public worship. They would get these writings, get these Psalms, and they were to lead in public worship of these songs. So this is uh, just as a reference point, First Chronicles 16, 37. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the Ark as each day required. Skipping a few verses down to 41. With them were Haman. So this is, uh, if you go to Psalm 88, uh, Haman, uh, Heman, I don't know how you say that. He-Man uh, wrote that one. And Jedithan, it's not He-Man, don't call him that. And Jedithan and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Haman and Jedithan had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. The sons of Jedithan were appointed to the gate. So there's like very much ordered worship here. So what was this psalm for? This psalm was for regular daily worship and remembrance, written by worship leaders, taught by worship leaders and directors, and led by the gatekeepers of these sacred practices. In other words, written to daily train God's people to seek the Lord in times of joy and in times of trouble, to have this be a trained response and action when things seem bad. One of the chief purposes 
of worship psalms is not just to praise God when things are going well, but to train the worshiper to seek God with their whole heart when they want to give up. When the darkness is surrounding them, to have less of a where are you, God, or why have you abandoned me, God, at reaction, and more of a trained, I will yet still praise him. Gabe walked us through last week, um, Psalm 42. Remember in that, why are you cast down, O my soul, yet still I will praise him. It doesn't always a feeling, right? It's a commitment. True worship is fully committing to the only true light in the darkness because there's nothing else. There's no other hope. This is it, desperate for something. Worship means realizing the very real and present salvation happening daily to a sin-sick people. So naturally, this psalm takes us to that place, and we'll see a training for us today on how to seek God in times of trouble. So let's get into it. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. So before we go further, Selah is kind of an interesting word. There's kind of not really a ton of people don't know a ton about it, but it seems to be a musical notation for pause and reflection. When you see in the Psalms the word Selah, it's like the worship leader saying, hey, we just said a bunch of stuff. Take a second and reflect on that. Meditate on what you just read. Don't just breeze past it. So what I want to do real quick is I want to be led by the psalmist today. So Annie's actually going to come up and just play some instrumental music in the background. I'm going to put those verses we just read up there. and We're just going to take one to two minutes and just look at them. Just feel them. Really look at the words and take a second and reflect and meditate, and then I'll come back up in a second. Thank you. 
be curious to hear uh, later on what comes to mind or, or tell your community, but some things I noticed already about this worship song, just reading those words over and over and over. Um, the psalmist is, he's doing the right things, but it's with negative results. Right, in the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. I stretch out my hand without wearying, without ceasing. Like I'm just crying out to God day and night. These are good things to do, but what does he say? My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So remember, this is most likely written in exile. The psalmist remembers what life was like before they were exiled. He remembers the days before where songs of praise would comfort their heart when they were just in this good space. He could sleep, right? He could sleep well, and now he's in turmoil and cannot sleep nor sing. The next three verses. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my, in my heart. See, the psalmist, you can hear it, this longing to remember what used to comfort him. Have you ever experienced that? Where something worked at some point in time, a song brought you out of it, or a piece of cake was just perfect for what it was, or a prayer, or a friend, or something, and it's like, where's that again? Why? Or maybe you do that exact same thing again, and it doesn't have the same results. Well, to me, it, this reminds me also of like a relationship that has stopped growing together. A relationship that once was greatly in love has kind of grown stale, and one or both parties have stopped pursuing the other. What, one, you, what once used to be electrifying now just feels dull. And this is where worship is, it can get. And this is where worship is not just something to do, but a relationship to be had with God himself. And just like any real relationship, we, we can fall out of step and lose our awe of God if we don't seek him with our whole heart. But be rest assured, God will never leave you nor forsake you. God is faithful. Remember, this is a part of the guidebook to worship in the Psalms. It's okay to feel deeply and to recognize and to feel anguish and to moan in the darkness and the distress of living as a human in this world. But here, this psalmist does an important exercise for this state. This is the second half of verse 6. It says, Then my spirit made a diligent search, and he asked these hard-hitting questions. Maybe you've asked these before. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. I'm gonna, again, I'm going to leave those questions up for a minute or two and just read them over and over and I'll come back up.
Those questions are hard, right? Those questions are full of anguish and hard to bear. There's also kind of an interesting element to the questions. They're also a bit rhetorical. They're meant to be a bit of an extreme examples of his soul asking not just hard questions, but the right questions to get back to the heart of faith. Now just go with me for a second. In the beginning of our Bibles, there was one question like this one, but it was from the adversary, from Satan, to the first created humans, Genesis 3.1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This question was posed with an evil intent to plant the thought in Adam and Eve's mind that God maybe wasn't actually good. That maybe God was in fact not trustworthy. But here, and probably why it's included in our canon of scripture, are questions not to lead us down the path of untrust, but to rhetorically go to extremes of what we know is not true of God. Right, think about the questions posed. Has his steadfast, unchanging, always and forever love stopped? Has God, whose very name contains, according to Exodus 34, compassion, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, has that God in his very name forgotten to be gracious? Like, what is the obvious answer? Of course not, right? Of course not. We can feel deeply that maybe it feels like that, but the answer is of course not. How ridiculous it should seem now to think that we could ever doubt or even lose complete faith in God when he doesn't do what we think he should do. But the finite and fickle patience of God's people is this wisp of smoke compared to the faithfulness, the ocean of grace God has displayed to his people throughout the generations. When has God ever utterly failed his people? In fact, this is where the psalmist takes us next in the turning point in the psalm where he says in verse 10, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. This line is, is interesting because Asaph is, is going to now look at all the times God has, re has reached out in his awesome power and done incredible things but almost in grief that it almost seems like God doesn't do those things anymore. That, the message translation of this verse made me laugh. Said, Eugene Peterson wrote, Just my luck, I said. The high God retires just the moment I need him. <laughs> but still, he's going to practice remembering. After he, after he asked those powerful questions, he's going to answer those rhetorical questions with remembering the God who's been faithful to his people and to place himself and us today in that same camp training to remember hope. Verse 11, so I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. And in this Selah, I just want to kind of reflect out loud with you all. As the psalmist Asaph remembers, he is enamored once again with God. What God is great like our God? 
Do you see what he's doing? He's reciting, he's retraining his heart and his mind in what he believes. And look at all the yous in there. Your way, O God, is holy. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might. You have redeemed your people. The awe that is starting, is transpiring here and reforming in the psalmist and is here is the heart that believes again, that remembers again. This is a phenomenal worship moment. And not just the God who does things in secret, but that he, he makes his mighty works known among the people. Why do you think Asaph throws out Jacob and Joseph at the end there? Like usually at the end of our, our text, it's like, and because of the children of Abraham, or because Moses and Aaron, or something like that, right? That's very specific, right? Very specific. And just let me nerd out for a second. Jacob was Joseph's father, okay? And if you remember their stories, Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, and instead of rotting away there, God used him to not only show his faithfulness, but to actively bless the nation of Israel when a severe drought came, and God gave Joseph the insight to save grain for all the people, if you remember this story. His father Jacob and his whole family, a.k.a. the 12 tribes of Israel, were preserved and then would not perish in Egypt. That's like a huge thing. They would not perish in Egypt. Now, other than this being a really cool story, there's this motif throughout our scriptures of Egypt being the kind of the oppressive structure, the oppressive kingdom, we should say. This evil uh, Babylon could be another word for it, this underlying kingdom compared to God's good kingdom. God's people were constantly subjected to this Egypt, right? This proverbial kingdom of darkness, and Egypt tried to destroy them, but God always made a way out of the proverbial Egypt time and time again. So remember, Asaph, who wrote this psalm, a student of the story of Israel, is singing praise songs of deliverance from Egypt and what it represents. Every time an Egypt shows up, the promised land is waiting. Every time there is slavery, God makes a way to freedom. The people were in exile in their own Egyptian or Egypt narrative, much as a consequence to their own sin, but the hope as they remember together as a community, the promised land is waiting because the creator of the promised land never breaks his promises. And if you've been around church or the Bible for barely any time at all, when you hear Egypt, there's probably a handful of stories that come to mind, but there's usually one that just kind of like floats to the top, if you get my meaning, right? Asaph takes us there with his next words. It's the Red Sea. You didn't get the float in reference? (laughs) Verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Like, not only is he taking us to the Red Sea, but he's also showing his evidential power of God even among creation. Even the water trembled before him. Now, to get real fat, but like, if you want to get super nerdy, Asaph is also using like an ancient Hebrew motif of water being this chaotic evilness, kind of representing that. The waters that want to consume the people, drown all the hopes and dreams of salvation, they tremble. They were afraid of this God. And as we're going to see in a second, Asaph ends with remembering one of the most iconic and remarkable acts of God to ever be displayed, the parting of the Red Sea. Now, almost all of us could tell the story, but it's fascinating to read Asaph's kind of poetic retelling of the story because some of the details are a bit lost in translation. Let me read you Psalm 77's retelling. 
Verse 17, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Now, remember, this is all ancient poetry, so not necessarily to be taken literally, but trying to describe in a poetic way the crossing of the Red Sea and all that happened had to have been a very difficult task. How do you explain in detail the mighty acts of God? And here's what I want to do. I think it's really important, and I found this powerful in the prep, was to actually go, and you can close your eyes if you want, but to read just the crossing of the Red Sea, just to reread it and to re-put ourselves into the, just the magnitude of that moment and to kind of put in maybe some of the language that Asaph used here. So again, just real quick context, I'm sure everyone knows, but Moses and the entire people of God are leaving Egypt, but they've come up to a dead end. They've come up to the mighty Red Sea and Pharaoh's army's coming after me. Uh, I won't sing it. And was coming in hot because Pharaoh decided to change his mind and go get back his slaves. So you can close your eyes, you can whatever. It's just, it's like 10 verses or so, oh, maybe 20. Um, but let me read it. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night. Remember Asaph writing, your arrows flashed on every side, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind, maybe the whirlwind from Psalm 77. All night it made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the water being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariot and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And the last verse, very important, verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What a powerful reminder this story is. 
especially for a people who feel as trapped as the people behind Moses once felt. Asaph leading public worship of God by making the people remember where they were, trapped in Egypt, slaves to Pharaoh, crying out for deliverance, and God answered with salvation. Some of us today, though, looks much differently, feel trapped between our own Egypt that keeps enslaving us to its passions and what seems like no way forward. Many of us just want to avoid the pain. But as Asaph is remembering what meant for the Israelite people between Pharaoh's army army and the Red Sea, he remembers not a path that took them from where they were, but a way that was through where they were at. Let me read you Asaph's final remembrance in this psalm of praise, 19 and 20. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The whole point of remembering Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and the deliverance of God is to remind God's people that he was, he is, and he will be the God who delivers and redeems his people. There is hope through every hardship, right? God doesn't promise to not let us go through hardship, but he will make a way through it. And what is produced in us by God taking us through that hardship is something we could never do on our own. The beautiful reminder in worship is this. God did not abandon his people there at the Red Sea. He will not abandon his people now, and he will not abandon you and me. And even though this psalm, as we talked about, the books of the psalms kind of correlate, and we looked at much of the Exodus story, this book is a lot connected to Leviticus. This is all within worship. It's not just a cool story. This is all within worship of remembering the God that was to appreciate and worship the God that is now. Right? To foster a heart wholly devoted and worshiping to the God who does not change. Asaph takes his hearers back so there can be hope moving forward. The book of Leviticus literally describes God creating a system of worship that's based on remembrance and not losing sight that the God we worship today is still the same God. Amen? And even more than that, he made a way, and he made a way, a permanent way to be rid of the plague of sin that was placed on mankind from the very beginning. Our scriptures say sin leads to death, death being this kind of ultimate sea. Everyone has to pass through it except We look back and we see that Jesus made a way through death. Jesus paid the price. He took on death and defeated its power so that a child of God would never again be a slave to sin. Now there is life where there was death. And Jesus says, come and follow me through to that life that I have for you. In our worship today, we get to look back and remember all the great things God has done, not just for us in our lives. We need to remember that stuff. It's easy to forget. But the history of mankind, right? Our God is faithful, compassionate, gracious, abounding in love and mercy. That is who he is. But it's hard to feel stuck. It's hard to feel surrounded by pain and sin and trapped by the lust of the flesh and the distorted desires of the heart. But this psalm, putting us now in the place of remembrance of God's people on that sea line, wondering what to do. You bet there was temptation to just go back to Egypt. 
Why have you brought us out here just to kill us, Moses? Many of them cried. There's always the temptation to go back and be servants to sin again. In this world, there's always an Egypt to go back to. But there's so much more to go through to. Sin always demands and never satisfies, but God calls us to follow him and our satisfaction is in him and the life that he brings is truly life. Christ went through it all in his life and death on the cross so that you and I would always have a path to follow. Just like the Israelites had to pass through the Red Sea, Jesus passed through death so that we could follow his path of life that is available to all who believe and confess him as Lord. And to answer the psalmist, God's love will go on forever. His steadfast love will not end. His promises are for all time. God has not forgotten to be gracious and compassionate. So the question is this for all of us. In times of trouble, are we a people who seek pain avoidance and just a way out? Or do we seek the Lord as the way through? In our struggles and our joys, remember this as a prayer and worship as we move to respond this morning. Verse 19 again. Your way, God, was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen.